Welcome to Catholic View right here on Radio Veritas. I'm Shayla Pirsch. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Coming up in today's broadcast, I'll be bringing you an education feature, and I'll do that by speaking to Professor Nklantla Make about various aspects concerning the education system in South Africa as well as African literature. But first, as usual, I'd like us to begin by taking a look at some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa today. Hi, I'm Archbishop Peter Wells, Apostolic Nuncio. Thank you for listening to Radio Veritas, the good news for a change. And in your headlines this Tuesday evening, shepherds are not the center of the church, says Pope Francis at Daily Mass. Catholic Church consultative meeting in Malawi. And Radio Maria goes global in Arabic. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. Shepherds are not the center of the church. That was the key message of Pope Francis' homily at this morning's daily mass at the Vatican Santa Marta residence. The Pope said the true shepherd knows how to step down from his church because he knows that he's not at the center of history, but he's a free man who has served without compromises and without taking control of his flock. Pope Francis drew inspiration from the first reading of the day where St. Paul addressed the church leaders in Ephesus to comment on the fact that a shepherd must be ready to step down completely from his church rather than leave in a partial manner. Uno dei passi che deve fare un pastore è anche prepararsi per congedarsi bene, non congedarsi a metà. This reading, he said, could easily be called a bishop's leave-taking, because Paul has left the church of Ephesus in order to go to Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit called him to go. All shepherds, he said, have to step down. There comes a moment where the Lord says, go to another place, and a shepherd must be prepared and not hang on to his position. According to the Pope, St. Paul had held a council with all the priests of Ephesus, and during this council he had demonstrated three apostolic attitudes. The first of these, he said, is never turning back. The second is obedience to the Spirit. The third attitude is, I do not consider my own life to be precious in any way. I am not the center of history. I am not the center. I am a servant. Pope Francis concluded his homily asking for prayers for our shepherds for our parish priests, our bishops, the Pope, that their lives will be lives lived without compromise, lives on a journey, and lives where they do not believe that they are the center of history and have learnt to step down. On Monday, the Catholic Church in Malawi began a two-day consultative meeting to review its five-year strategic plan, which is set to expire in December. Speaking at the official opening of the meeting, the Vice Chairman of the Episcopal Conference of Malawi, Bishop Martin Mutumbuka, said that the meeting would also draw a roadmap on how the Catholic Church in Malawi is going to operate in the next five years. 
I think the, the main message is that we review the current strategic framework. We should come up with a very clear issues that the church in Malawi should address in the three areas, administration, uh, passport, and as well as charity and development. And that this, uh, we need to do that because the country faces so many challenges in this area. We cannot address all of them at the same time, so we should address the key ones and uh, line them up and be clear about what steps we should take to address them as a, as a church in It's the main message. As the conference you endorsed and approved this strategic framework, why do you think it's important for diocesans as well to emulate and embrace it? Well, the document is a framework, so it is an overarching thing. It means it is supposed to provide guidance to all dioceses as well as all Catholic institutions. Now, after five years, we need to look at it, what have we achieved? But also, within these five years, no issues have emerged. How are we going to address them? But the, the bottom line is to make sure that we address issues, we evangelize, we commit ourselves to development as a family. Uh, that, uh, uh, as a family of God, we address these things together. This is the most important thing, it's underlying our unity. Uh, so we get dioceses are autonomous, but we, in Malawi here we form one uh, family and we want to address these issues as a family. So the, the issue of solidarity and unity here are coming out. That, that's why we want to do these things together. Now as bishops, how committed are you in supporting this strategy? The bishops, have, the bishops have always been committed. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be sitting here if the bishops didn't want. Well, we, we, we work as one family. The, the conference already is one conference. So doing things together is how we have always wanted. And we will always do things together uh, as a conference. The Catholic Church is everywhere. That's how it does things. So here in Malawi, we as a conference will always do these things together, whether it's pastoral front, development front, uh, the administration front. Uh, we will always do these things together uh, as a family. Archbishop John Baptist Odama of the Catholic Archdiocese of Gulu, Uganda, has called on Kenyans to maintain peace during and after the August 8th general election. Speaking during an international conference on sustainable security and peace in Africa at Tangaza University College in Nairobi, Archbishop Odama appealed to all aspiring leaders to accept the will of the people, whatever the outcome. He said that peace must be safeguarded consistently and no political leader should be allowed to take advantage and cause violence. Nearly 100 Christians have been arrested this month in Eritrea, the one-party East African state that is among the world's most repressive. According to World Watch Monitor, which reports on the persecution of Christians, the arrests come 10 years after the regime of Isaiah Afwerki, the nation's president since 1993, imprisoned the head of the Eritrean Orthodox Church and installed a new patriarch in his place. In 2015, Pope Francis established the Eritrean Catholic Church, the first Eastern Catholic Church formally established since the early 20th century. Previously, the nation's 160,000 Eastern Catholics had belonged to the Ethiopian Catholic Church. Missionary movement Mizian Kara is launching its new five-year plan focusing on key areas of education, healthcare, sustainable development and human rights. It provides life-saving support for vulnerable communities in over 50 countries worldwide. Heidi Foster is the CEO of Mizian Kara. Mission Cara is a member-led organization focused specifically on overseas missionary aid. 
We work closely with our 90 members, supporting them on a focus on projects. Depending on the year, we might be in over 60 countries in a number of sectors. Mission CARA is for now exclusively funded by Irish Aid. We collaborate, we work with TROCRA and a couple of other funders, but we exclusively work with missionaries. So tell me something about the most successful projects that you've been involved in recently or the kind of areas, the kind of communities that you're supporting? We have a number. For example, in, in education, we have a girls project in South Sudan that's been run by the Loreto sisters. You know, South Sudan is a fragile country. The, mm. the economy has collapsed. War and famine has stifled the development in South Sudan. And the situation is particularly difficult for young women. I was shocked to learn that a teenage girl is seven times more likely to die in childbirth than complete secondary school. So the the Loreto sisters are running a girls' primary and secondary schools in Rumbeck and are working to change this reality. In other African news, speaking at the recently concluded G7 summit in Italy, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged the world leaders from Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom and the United States to help foster inclusive, innovation-driven growth and development in Africa. Reporting from UN News, here's the NPEN. The Secretary General commended the G7 for putting focus on Africa at a time when the continent is facing numerous challenges, such as a slowdown in economic growth. Furthermore, several countries continue to show fragility, characterized by weak institutions and an inability to provide basic services. However, he said, Africa continues to be a continent of resilience and opportunity. He outlined six ways the G7 can contribute to its development, including by investing in young people, supporting efforts to empower young women and girls, and disseminating new, more efficient technologies that are sustainable and affordable. The UN chief pointed out that Africa could be vulnerable to changes brought on by the so-called Fourth Industrial Revolution, where emerging technologies will dominate. He said countries must help the continent to adapt, for example, through stronger investment in technology and education, among other measures. He said failure to do so could increase fragility and spur massive displacement, in addition to boosting unemployment rates, especially for young people. The International Organization for Migrants, IOM, reports that more than 60,000 migrants and refugees entered Europe by sea this year. Reporting from UN News, here's Jocelyn Simbira. Over 80% of them arrived in Italy, the agency says. The remainder arrived in Greece, Cyprus and Spain. The new figures do not include some 6,000 people who've been rescued over the past 72 hours. Meanwhile, 1,530 migrants and refugees have died in 2017 on the Mediterranean route, a figure that roughly matches that of last year for the same period. However, IOM warns that the deadliest season is about to start. 
And finally, online radio Merriam is situated just a few steps from St. Peter's Square. It can be heard all over the world in Arabic. It focuses especially on Christians who currently suffer the most. Messages are transmitted in every Arabic dialect and includes excerpts from the Maronite or the Greek Melkite. The purpose is to provide a message to all listeners in their native tongue, says Father Georges Brady, the director of Radio Mariam. Our mission is the mission of transmitting Christian hope to all those who are persecuted throughout the world especially to the Arabs. We want to tell them that their faith is very important for all Christians throughout the world. The editor of Radio Marian, Jad Kanan, says one of its more unusual transmissions was made possible due to the collaboration of the Maronite Cathedral of Aleppo, which happened on Christmas Eve 2016. The project was presented to Pope Francis. He was very happy and also gave his support. Radio Mariam was created with the idea to help the persecuted Christians and bring Christ to them. On Christmas Eve, we managed to broadcast the Mass from the Maronite Cathedral of Aleppo. For five years, there was no Mass there because the cathedral was destroyed. The roof collapsed. People could not risk it because there were so many bombing. And that was a brief look at some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa today. Thank you once again for joining me this Tuesday evening. You're listening to Catholic View right here on Radio Veritas. And I'm Sheila Pirsch. Coming up next, it's our education feature. Multi-award winner, scriptwriter, novelist and lecturer, to name but a few of his accolades, Professor Ntlantla Make has contributed quite a lot towards African literature and other academic works, including religious writings. In a chat about African literature, transformation in the education sector and education as a whole, I asked Professor Make to start by telling us a little more about his passion for literature. Well, looking back to my passion, I think it started very early, if not at a lower primary school, it must have been at higher primary school, because I used to love listening to radio plays, and because that was all the only means, you know, of entertainment. There was no television, there were no cinemas in the townships where we lived, and the radio was the only source of entertainment and also reading books. I had this keen passion to read books. I was very, very curious about reading books from a very, very early stage in my life. I can see you've carried on quite well. You've done a lot when it comes to contributing towards the world of literature in South Africa, not just in English, but also in native languages, quite a number of native languages that you've worked on. Now, let's talk about that. That's something that uh, I'm very uh, curious about, if I can put it that way, with so many developments uh, in South Africa lately, so many calls by young people demanding the decolonization of education in South Africa. Somebody like you, who comes all the way from the 60s and you still within the academic world, is this a feasible thing? Can we see South African education being transformed? Uh, we really need to transform South African education, but the most important thing is how do we define this transformation? I mean, there are 
many angles from which we can approach this question. Some think that transformation means change of the racial profile of academics and educators and so forth. Some think that education must become free for all and so forth. So there are many angles. Uh, there's also the legalistic uh, angle that, for example, if we take it from the Labor Relations Act and it defines designated groups and so on, that black people and women and so on are previously disadvantaged people and all that and must they must be given a certain advantage through maybe affirmative action and so on. So there are many ways of defining transformation and decoloniality. But from my perspective, I think that we must look at the essence. The first thing that I would really love to look at if I were given a blank check to talk about transformation is the curriculum. Because that is the essence of what we teach, of what students are taught, of how knowledge is created, how knowledge is disseminated, and so on. I think that is where we should start. And then we could look at other elements. We can, you know, do window dressing and change personnel and change the racial profile and so on. But if we don't change the curriculum, we'll have a problem. We'll have a perpetual problem. And, of course, when we talk about changing the curriculum, we, we're talking about right from the start, right from pre-primary school. We talk about right from the start from pre-primary school because if you start, say, at university or at later high school, further education and training, it's almost too late because you'll have students in the pipeline who are not educated properly in the education that is desired, in the education that will be Afrocentric, in the education that will be humanitarian, in the education that cares for humanity and so forth. So we've got to start at primary and work our way up as our students and learners develop and go up through higher primary, through high school and through university. I think that's where we must start. Now, one of the points you mentioned here is that uh, one of the ways that we look at transforming education, we also look at the fact that people come from disadvantaged background or people did not have the opportunities back in the days. But I'm looking at you. You come from that era and you didn't have all those facilities. Like you said, there was only radio in the townships, but that did not stop you from pursuing a passion in literature, from following that path and being who you are today. So what are your words when it, we always turn to cling to the fact that people come from disadvantaged backgrounds, people did not have the same opportunities as those of today? Well, uh, from my point of view, I think the first thing is vision and focus. If one has, first of all, I mean the visual vision, of where one wants to go. I think that is the starting point. And then you focus on it. There may be circumstances that may hinder you, that may stop you, that may prohibit you from moving forward. But if you are focused and you have eyes on the price, if I may use that expression from the civil rights movement, if you have the eyes on the price, you will definitely overcome obstacles, whether social, whether material conditions, and so on. Because I come from the generation that was highly deprived. And I'm not the only one who has made it through these difficulties. There are many names that I can mention of people who might even have heard far more hurdles to jump over than I've heard. And these people have really moved on because all we had was a vision for ourselves, for our family, for the community in which we live, and for society. And in every community, there are human conditions 
in every society in the world, there are human conditions that will universally make it difficult for people to progress. But if you've got your vision, your focus, tenacity of, paper, of purpose, but the bottom line for me is humaneness and compassion for what you want to do and for other people around you. That is what material conditions, I think, are secondary to spiritual, mental, and intellectual focus. When we grew up, there were no libraries in the township. I grew up in Togos, which was part of the eastern Ekurule. There was no library. And I went to school later in Sowet, in Immaculata High, in Diploof. I had to go through Johannesburg and to Diploof by bus. And I passed the Johannesburg Library, which is right in the center of the city. But we were not allowed to go in there. And there was no library in our schools. But we found ways of getting books of any kind, whatever books we could lay our hands on. We read those books with passion and commitment, wanting to learn whatever could be learned. And our, looking back, one may say that our curriculum was very narrow. It was meant to create a certain kind of human being who would be subservient to other people. But then even despite that, there were subjects that were universal, that we read, that could not be changed to suit budget education only. For example, in history, if you read the French Revolution, French Revolution is the French Revolution everywhere, and whatever perspective you take, all the elements that are involved in what the people were desiring would be there universally. You read geography, you can't change geography and make it Bantu education geography. You can't change biology, you can't change the human sciences and make them Bantu education human sciences. They remain what they are. You can't change mathematics. The only problem was perhaps the way in which these were taught. But even then, there were certain elements that could be made good use of that we exploited and tried to, you know, jump over the hurdles. Based on the debates that we've been having here in South Africa about the need to decolonize education, based on that, looking at the education system nowadays, the current education system, do you think it's a good one for the next generation? I wouldn't say it's a good one. Because going back, we started with outcome-based education, just called OPE. And then we moved to where we are now, CAPS, Curriculum Assessment Policy Statements and all that. I think that uh, we did not start from an Afrocentric or from a South African-centric position to say that what is it that we need to teach in our schools that will make our children become human beings, South Africans, Africans, and world citizens? What is it that will make them human beings, that will help them develop their humaneness, that will help them develop their humanity? Now, what we see now is that education is leaning towards the material subjects, towards economics, towards science, physical science, and so on. I don't think that is where the problem lies. The problem lies in the humanities, and I think the humanities should be our starting point. What does it mean to be a holistic human being, a person who expresses himself or expresses herself through other people without competing for material things? And I don't think the essence of our education prepares us for that. There is no spiritual element. There is no strong moral element. There is no strong humanitarian element. I think that is where we've got to start. Because a lot of money is being invested, uh, invested in the sciences. And the humanities are lagging behind in terms of funding. And that, I think that's where our problem lies. And our education has not started. 
addressing that issue. We see subjects, for example, in certain universities, philosophy, religious studies, classics, languages have been either undermined or phased out. And what does it mean to be a human, with, a human being without those subjects? That is and a then, problem for me. Yeah. And then what's the difference when we look at, for example, CAPS and we look at your IEB? How does a child that studies CAPS and the child that studies under IEB benefit at the end of the day when wanting to register at varsity? Well, the IEB are referring to the Independent Examination Board, isn't it? That's right, yes. And then the National Senior Certificate that comes under CAPS. That's right. Well, uh, universities tend to believe that those who have set for the IEB exam are better off than those who have set for the national certificate. The standard is said to be higher. But then I have uh, not had very close contact. I last examined for the IEB about maybe 15, 20 years ago. I've not been up to date. But there is that belief, whether mythical or real, that the IEB students will be better off when they come to university. And I think it, it is a myth for me. It depends which school, which background, which... The, the most important thing for me is the ethos of the school, irrespective of whether it drives the IEP or the National Certificate, the ethos of the school. So I think uh, when it comes to education as a whole in South Africa, we still need to emphasize the word transformation. Across the board. Yeah. In languages, in the sciences, in the economic sciences, in all the subjects across the board, we have to reconstruct our education so that it's directed towards serving South Africans, Africans, and then we look broader into the world. But the emphasis that I would like to make is that our humanities need to be galvanized through a good curriculum, through good teachers, and through good funding. Uh, good funding. And my thanks goes there to Professor Make. Well, that brings me up to time. You've been listening to Tuesday's edition of Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Shayla Pirsch for Radio Veritas. Should you wish to get in touch with me, feel free to send me an email, shayla at radioveritas.co.za. I'll be back again tomorrow evening at the same time. Thank you so much for listening. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Shayla Pirsch.